I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. Today's guest set sail on Friday the 13th of April in 1990 to Mozambique. It was Good Friday and Dave Muller was about to fulfill his boyhood dream of voyaging to the tropics. On board his yacht Arwen, which he had spent the previous 10 years building, was his wife Sandy and their two children, eight-year-old Tammy and Seth, who was about to turn five. But Friday the 13th turned out to be a bad omen. Fifteen days later, Dave's dream came to a shuddering halt when his yacht was shipwrecked and a one-eyed, gun-toting, vamoosh-yelling boy soldier and his band from Renamo, the vicious anti-communist rebel group that apartheid South Africa backed, took the family hostage. It took Dave 29 years to write his memoir, This Is Not Child's Play, which was published last year, and documents the Muller family's nightmare. Today, the 28th of April, 2020, is the 30th anniversary of the day the Mullers were taken captive. Welcome to Amma Booker Booker, Dave. Can you please read an extract from This Is Not Child's Play? Oh, thanks, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm going to just read the, the prologue. Would that be all right? Perfect. Okay. The date is the 28th of April, 2013, and I'm in Burundi as an architect, part of a volunteer group of building professionals assisting with the replanning of a rundown mission hospital, a victim of the wave of hatred that poured over Burundi and neighbouring Rwanda in 1994. The hospital is itself a trauma case. Our efforts are a first step towards resuscitation and the dream of it becoming the academic teaching hospital for the optimistically named Hope Africa University, based 60 kilometres north in the capital of Bujumbura. The founders of the Kabuyu Hospital chose their site well. We are high. 1,750 metres above sea level, and the most southerly source of the Nile dribbles from a rocky seep just a few kilometres away. So even though we are almost on the equator, the climate is crisp, and as the evening gloom drenches the softly creased highlands, a reviving coolness washes over the countryside and spills into the valleys. Our team sits around an archipelago of hastily assembled tables, focused on our evening meal, Outside the residence, Skopsal chills warnings into the grey twilight from the tall eucalyptus trees, anticipating its own dinner. We've been together for four days, and as is the daily routine, Phil asked one of the team to explain what motivated them to volunteer. This night, of all nights, the lot has fallen on me, and I can short-circuit my story and leave out the detail. But the sight of throngs of expended women, hollow-chested old men, and sad-eyed children have scraped away the scar tissue, protecting my memories. This place has exposed them, and the date, even the hours seem portentous, and so my memories bleed. Exactly 23 years ago, I was blundering through darkness, trying to keep up with the boys ahead, guided more by sound than sight as we crash and stagger through the coastal dune forest. Sandy and Tammy stumbled behind me. Sorry, it's kind of quite difficult to, quite difficult to go through it all again. So, okay, sorry. No, okay. no, absolutely fine. So, uh, exactly, twi- exactly 23 years ago, I was blundering through the darkness, trying to keep up with the boys ahead. 
guided more by sound than sight as we staggered and, and crashed through the coastal dune forest. Sandy and Tammy stumbled behind me. Another boy prods us forward with his AK-47. Seth clings to my sweat-sodden back. I have an overwhelming need to tell the story, to dilute the horror in escapation. I'm back there. Vivid memories, sights, sounds, tastes and swells, smells still lurk. How do I explain this overwhelming sense of being tainted, contaminated, maybe even infected by something horrible and repressed? something to which we all too glibly assign the word evil. I don't explain this irrational feeling that I'm carrying buried deep inside me, the pain of knowing firsthand the trauma of Mozambique's past. I've sensed that same burden here in Burundi, a country that has faced two genocides. Everyone we've met is gentle and moving along with the slow diurnal pace of their lives, but always, always there is a hesitation. Avoid left in conversation, don't ask about the past. Some things cannot be explained, so don't go there. Rather press forward, trusting that maybe, just maybe, cleansing and a step towards redemption can be found in acts of kindness. Maybe that is why I'm here, to reclaim an innocence through the act of giving and service, to trust that I can find healing in self-sacrifice. And so I brandish the sign of hope with a, like a crisp whitewashed garment that at this moment is focused on the resurgence of the Kabui Hospital. I launch into my story, and in the camaraderie of the new friendships, I feel comfortable telling it. That is until I reach the point two hours after sunset on the 28th of April, 1990, 23 years ago to the hour when we, it's me, Sandy, and my wife, and our two children, eight-year-old Tammy and five-year-old Seth, found ourselves seated in a shallow clearing, the soft, downy star glow above, defining the wall of dark vegetation around us. The elderly couple, our, old, our fellow captives, are not with us. The implication missed. We exhausted, soaked in sweat, terrified and profoundly lost when those sounds come from the darkness. Once again, I hear them clearly in my head. Slushy, sucking, stabbing wet sounds just meters away. Too late, I realize I should not have ventured there with my story. I should have skirted this moment that had so viscerally exposed humanity's brutality. This has happened before in the memories the burden flood me. My voice is lost amid the sobs. My listeners, of course, don't know how to react. I'm back in Mozambique, but I hear them like a distant shadow of sound. There is concern in their voices. Are you all right? What's wrong? All I can choke out are words formed elsewhere far away, in a distant time. I have no control over them. They just come and come and come without bidding. They were just children. All I can say again, all I can say again and again, as I struggle for breath, is you don't understand. They were just children. Afterwards, there are many apologies, but it's not their fault. I went where I knew danger lurked, unlocking strong rooms of the mind, best kept shut. Surely after all these years, these memories would by now be softened, even erased. A few days later, someone kindly suggests that I visit a psychologist once I get home to South Africa. They were probably right, but I decide it's time for a purging, time to finally tell the story. So once back home, I find the cardboard box containing the relics from that time a collection of photographs and newspaper clippings 
old exercise books filled with the children's writings and drawings, a postcard of a man in a military uniform, a 50 rand banknote, a few spent bullets and empty cartridges, the beautiful woven basket given as a gift, the carved wooden dice spoons and the cleft sticks used for drying fish, the palm prong tweezers for extracting bullets, and at the bottom of the box, most precious of all, the diary I kept. Thank Sorry. you. Thanks, Dave. That was really, really amazing. Um, the diary that you kept, um, I, I just had a look at the writing. It was tiny. You, you talk about it as a purging, but was it a cathartic experience writing this memoir? Yes, Jonathan, it was very much a cathartic experience. I mean, you can hear it still affects me. So it was a horrendous experience. So people have asked me, how do you sort of put your lives together after it? Well, one of the things is you've got to just move on. You've got to put it behind you. But part of that is like a cleansing process. And writing it initially, just transcribing the diary into a form that people could actually read was, was a very cathartic experience for me. Yeah. That first night when you met Paul Patrick, you were looking for signs that you aren't going to be killed. Mm. I mean, how do you process that in, the, in that moment? You, you're with your young family it must have been absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it was. You know, we were probably, to some extent, so our emotions were a little bit dulled by the horror of running aground and then the horror of being captured and then the exhaustion of the walk down the beach and then that horror of that old couple being killed. Um, all I can remember is, and funny, Sandy and I hardly spoke during that time because you didn't want to say it because that would have made it real. But the one thing we did agree was that... Um, we were scared of being separated from the children, so we, we took the decision that even if it meant death, we would, we would remain with them. We would defend that to the end. And I think we kind of just thought we were dead. You know, we were literally the walking dead at that point. We had no hope of survival. I mean, during your captivity, there were moments of euphoria, but moments of fear, not knowing if you were going to get out alive. And you talk about this yo-yoing of emotions. How did you cope physically and emotionally with all these different emotions? Well, we thought quite well. <laughs> but, but in reality, probably not particularly well. Because, you, you, you know, when you're in that kind of situation, you're blinded to your own emotional state. Uh, so we didn't realize we were in this yo-yo, which, which is exactly what it was, of looking around and trying to see signs of hope, something that would indicate maybe we were going to be released, because it seemed just absolutely never-ending. So you would grasp upon some ridiculous action that uh, would perhaps indicate that maybe you're going to be released, a piece of newspaper transferred between two people, and you think, ah, that's our release note. And of course it doesn't happen. And then there was a the whole saga where we thought helicopters would land there during the full moon. Uh, so you, you go through this yo-yo of up and down, up and down, but you never get up as high as you were before. So you, you're actually going downhill all the time. And, uh, well, maybe we'll come to it a bit later, but, I mean, one of the great blessings was that the Defence Force actually put together a team of, team of psychiatrists to look after us once we were on the on the Tafelberg. And thank goodness for them. Um, they realised the state we were in, and uh, they they made us tell the story. That was, that was exceptionally cathartic. Absolutely horrendous, but very cathartic. You write that you wondered if your daughter Tammy would remember the ordeal in later years. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you what she remembers, but she's here with you, so I'm just going to ask her directly. <coughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
Tammy, uh, it must have been, you were eight, you know, you're now 39, 38, 38. 38. (laughs) What do you remember of those 49 days? So I can, I can recall still quite a lot, actually. Um, But what I have come to realize is that a lot of my memories are somewhat blurred and not quite as it actually happened. But I do have clear memories of the moment we were captured, the walking down the beach, the staying in the camps. Uh, We were talking earlier about that incident with Cyclops where he was disciplined. I can remember that clearly. I can remember playing in the camp, building the house. I can remember when the camp was attacked as well. The terror of that sound of missiles coming in, I can remember that. And, um, you know, I also have some really happy memories of when we were uh, released onto the Tafelberg and the way we were treated. They put massive swings up on the Tafelberg for my brother and I, and we loved that. And we got spoiled with Barbie doll and, I don't know, cream soda and Spalletta. And at that time, that was a, that was a big win in our books. So, yeah, I mean, like I say, I have clear memories, but my mom and dad did a fantastic job of protecting us. So I would say, and Seth, if he was here today, he would say that our memories are generally good memories. It was more of an adventure. Well, the, the way you write about Seth being in this big yeah. sandpit and collecting yeah. Songololos and yeah. interacting, you know, having this kind of weird relationship yes. with uh, one of the, the senior yes. rebel guys, yeah. how has he processed? He's recently had a little baby. Um, she's now 16 months, 17 months old. And he said at the book launch that for him, the processing and the reality of the trauma of that situation only now really become real now that he's had a child. But his words were, it was one big adventure. So in his head, it was just one big fun time. And do you still read The Chatty Parrot? You know, we haven't. That was one of the things we said we were going to do was try and get our hands on a Chatty Parrot. And I did look. There is a copy on eBay, so <laughs> we're going to have to get it for Abigail. This was, this, uh, just to, to explain, this was just one of the, the, the only book that you... Well, it was, yeah. his, it was his fifth birthday because it was from yeah. my sister and brother-in-law. Yeah, and it was the only thing that we had to read while we were there. Yeah, chatty parrot. You were captured while you were having a party for Seth yes, after yes. the ship had, had yeah. run aground, the yacht had run aground. Yeah, our, our priority was to refloat the yacht. And so we were sort of rushing around, desperately trying to do this. Uh, but Seth's priority was completely different. And he suddenly realised it was his birthday. <laughs> yeah. so he ended up having this impromptu birthday, which was sadly gate-crashed. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that comes across in the book is the endless loops of music that the boy soldiers play in the camp. And I just, this is the entry for day 29. Saturday, 26th of May, I spend the day counting the number of times songs are repeated. I give up after 14. Do you ever hear a song that was played endlessly that takes you back to the time now? Uh, No. Some answer to that question, but I have. It was Benga music that they played. That was the genre that it was called. It's it's a Kenyan type of music, a really fast guitar strumming, and uh, so I've listened to it. I mean, I I recognise at the moment I hear it. It's weird how you sort of transpose your trauma onto things, and for me, loud music is one of those things. So I have to this day this really weird and irrational response of wanting to run away from loud music, which is kind of a bit unfortunate. <laughs> so, anyway, so yeah, to answer your question, no, I haven't. You had nicknames for your captors, Captain Hook, Pretty Face, 
who Sandy took out a bullet from his backside, Cyclops, Flashman. And it's clear that you grew to like some of them and you clearly bonded with them, but they were still your, your captors. How did you reconcile those two conflicting emotions? Yeah, we gave them funny names purely because we didn't know their names and we needed to communicate amongst ourselves to who we were referring. Um, so there wasn't any disrespect intended in that. But um, they treated us incredibly well. Uh, they really did give us the best that they possibly could under the circumstances. And um, it took a long time to for the penny to drop for us to realize that we were actually hostages. Um, yes. We thought we were going to be released. And we thought that when we weren't released, we then thought, well, we've now been captured. And these guys were were walking around with guns and putting an armed guard across our doorway and that sort of thing, purely to stop us from running away, which is, in retrospect, an absurd notion because we were so exhausted and there was no chance of us being able to run away. Uh, and in fact, only after the first attack, when the camp was attacked by Frelimo, after that, the commander of the camp came across and told us that, you know, this has just happened because of you. Yes. Um, Frelimo want to kill you. And we sort of like, oh, come on, you know, you've got to be joking. You're the bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> on that point, um, you had thought it might be possible to flee to Frelimo and seek refuge yeah. with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then to find out, well, actually, perhaps there's a chance that if you went to Frelimo, you yeah. would seal your fate in a very different way. That must have also been not knowing what was actually going on and who you could trust. Yeah, well... Actually, I haven't really answered your question about uh, about the relationship with the boys. So, yeah, as a result of this, we kind of realized that they were looking after us. And uh, they were just kids, you know. So if you call them child soldiers, they were more child than soldiers. And they were really lovely people, uh, incredibly nice people. Maybe it was an element of um, Stockholm, is it the Stockholm Syndrome? Yes, yeah. That, uh, that was taking place, but I don't think so. We, we respected them. We could see that there was a lot of worth in them as young people. One of the things that I can remember, which highlighted for me this, uh, this dichotomy that you feel, is a raiding party had just come back from raiding the nearby town of Masinga. And um, we, were, we saw them coming in, and they were carrying all sorts of bits and pieces. And I can recall going along to see what they'd captured and, and being actually, gee, you know, quite excited about this fact that these guys had come back with all this booty. Um, and through Patrick, who was our interpreter, Patricia was our interpreter. Uh, I remember asking, did he have a good raid? You know, how did it go well? And then I suddenly realized this meant people were killed. You know, the turban that was the guy was wearing was probably on somebody's head the day before. And the um, the parrot in a cage was somebody's pet. And and in a way, I'd become complicit. I'd, I'd sort of siding with him. And uh, that made me realize I couldn't hold a light to them at all. If I were them, I would have probably acted the same way, just out of pure survival. I'm, I'm not revealing any spoilers, but after 49 days, you did get out alive. Yes. In fact, you were rescued on your 39th birthday, yeah. so there is that also kind well, of symmetry. Right. Yeah. Mm. Um, reading the chapter about your rescue was very tense. Can you describe Gavin Christie, who was one of the rescuers, saying to you, boy, am I glad to see you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was a, often during the experience, if one looks at sort of, you know, what you would call the sort of broad arc of the narrative of the story, it felt as though we'd fallen into some kind of like ready-made story. It was very bizarre. We felt, it really did feel like we'd fallen into a TV drama or an adventure story. So when that end came and 
we knew we were going to be released, but we knew no details at all about how we were going to be released. And the last thing on earth that would have crossed our mind was that it would be by sea. We found ourselves sitting in the dark. We knew they'd lit these three fires. Uh, Patricia was called away. Patricia was our interpreter, was called away by my dear old Captain Hook. And um, so Patricia ran off. And then he came running back to us and said, quick, 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 you must come, you must come. And I can remember at that point, I kind of flipped and I grabbed hold of him. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. Tell me where we're going. Because we just didn't know what was happening. Anyway, he didn't listen to me. So he, he grabbed our things. Uh, we had a few bags of coconuts and stuff and, and, and the all-important diary. And he ran off into the dark because we had to kind of follow him. And there was this whole group of people milling around. There was this like huge party taking place on the beach with these giant fires the size of houses that they'd lit. We were just left standing there, like you know, the spare ones at the party. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually this guy in a wetsuit sort of emerges out with a big bushy beard and he sticks out his hand to me and he says, Oh, you Mr. Muller. <laughs> We're like, what, what else could you be? And uh, yeah, and I said, Yes. And he said, Boy, are we glad to see you. The reason he said that was because they didn't think we were there. They were very surprised to find us on the beach. Their intelligence had indicated we were about 50 kilometers inland still. This was the Rickies. So they, they were anticipating quite a long walk or a helicopter ride. But I think, you know, my overriding feeling and memory of that, is it was one of the saddest moments of my life, sort of, you know, going away from the coast and, and seeing those three, little, <clears throat> those three little lights just diminishing and then sort of arriving at the Tafelberg, uh, was that uh, you, you can hear it now, even in my own voice, it's kind of quite difficult to talk about it. Um, I wish we'd shown more emotion, but we were, were catatonic at that point. Of course, and, uh, yeah. We just like closed in on ourselves. There was this whole great drama of us arriving on the top of Berg, which you can read about. It's like almost stage set. We were the ones who weren't acting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kind of feel a bit sad that, that we didn't show enough thanks and love to the people who'd come to rescue us. Well, it certainly comes across in the book. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that the commander of the camp, you write when you managed to write a letter and he wants his name on the letter, was Armindo... Milako, I'm probably mispronouncing that very badly. I googled him and discovered that he was killed in October 2013. Yeah, had you been following anything that had happened with the Renamo and the war, trying to find out what had happened to some of the people that you had encountered during those days? Um, yeah, I follow what's going on in Mozambique with some interest. I kind of feel that I have this sort of slight vested interest in it, which is I remember one of my editors called me out on that and said, you know, that's very arrogant that you could think that anything that happened in Mozambique is because of you. <laughs> but, uh, but the simple fact is the first ceasefire was actually the, our release. So because of that, I kind of feel a bit invested in it. And I have been back there quite a few times. But as far as trying to find those people, um, I'm a bit conflicted in terms of knowing whether I would want to. I, I, think, I think I actually would. But I'm also terrified of, of meeting them again. But unfortunately, most of the players are now dead, um, have been killed or died in one way or another. And I was really sad to read that story about Arlindo or Armindo. It's these, his name seems to be spelt differently in different reports uh, because he kind of, there's not much of him that's recorded uh, that you can see. But one of the things was that he stayed a fighter to the end and he felt, you know, men needed to be tough and the boys needed to be in the army. So he, he always supported the military solution. Uh, and in the end, he was the, he was the only one that 
died when they tried to restart the war. So we'll never really know what was going through his mind. He was a very, very nice guy, you know. He's, uh, he was obviously an exceptionally competent leader. And he was quite different to the others in the camp. He stood head and shoulders above them. Great. We're now going to play some sound effects. We call it the sound effects Rorschach test. And Tammy, if you want to join in, you're very welcome to. The sound effects Rorschach test. You can you remember what that was? I'm taking that's a parrot sound. No. Uh, no. Okay, I have to say that thing living in England now that just makes me think of Africa. Oh, okay. well, so that's what pops into my head. Okay. It's, not, it's not exactly quite I'm sure I'm sure I know why you played that. And I can't whistle unfortunately, so I can't do the right thing. It's not quite like that. But those are the whistles that the system that Renama used to communicate the change of God and things like that. So it was sort of like a rising, falling, triple call that they used on just a normal referee's whistle. I don't remember that at all. Not at all. (laughs) Storm. (laughs) You know what, that storm before when we, that we ran around, Seth and I were in the yacht, in um, downstairs obviously, because it was safe for us. We were having a whale of a time because <laughs> the yacht was keeling quite a bit, so we would be able to see fish swimming past and all sorts. But yeah, I'm sure that's not the experience that mom and dad had at all. No, that was quite exhilarating. But yeah, that, that really would remind one of the storm the night before, the day before we ran aground. Yeah. You mentioned that I think it was somebody called Stephen that you yes, built. Yes, Stephen, my partner. Yeah, the R one who came up with the name, which is Lord of from oh, we Lord of the Rings. Yeah. We were two soppy, soppy <laughs> youngsters. So this was our sort of existential escape from the world, and, and Arwen just fitted in very well with that. Um, it must have been devastating when you learned that it had, had been burnt. And Yeah, it was, yeah. And uh, what did Stephen say to you when you eventually... Well, you know, there's, well, Stephen and I are still very good friends, you know, and I, I, I always feel very bad because I kind of stole his dream away from him. Uh, but Stephen's, Stephen's own life has followed a course and it's gone well for him and his wife um, and his kids. But I can remember uh, Stephen, while we were in Mozambique, Stephen uh, got married. So on top of all the other traumas, he had to handle, <laughs> had to handle that fact. So when we got back... Um, the first chance I had to meet him uh, was actually at the 1827 festival uh, in in Grahamstown. So we sat there in the in the auditorium, and it was it was quite an emotionally charged meeting. The day we launched Arwen, one of our favourite songs was MacArthur's Park, Melting in the Dark. It's yeah, it's all a story about sort of lost love, and uh, so it's MacArthur's Park is melting in the dark, or the deep cream icing flowing down. Someone left the cake out in the rain. I don't think that I can take it because it took so long to bake it. We'll never have that recipe again. Those are the words uh, by Jimmy Webb. The day we launched Arwen, we'd launched Arwen and we'd moored alongside. And I mean, like finally after 10 years, we'd reached this goal. And uh, the radio was on in the cabin and the song played. It's about six or seven minutes long. So it's not very often played on the radio. We, we both remember that very well. And when I met Stephen and we said goodbye, he just said, well, we'll never have that recipe again. And that was very poignant, actually. Yeah, yeah. So. Donkeys. Yeah, they, they, we woke up to, to cocks crowing and donkeys braying every morning. Um, Sandy wrote a 
book about the, the cock and doodle do that lost its doodle do. Yes. Um, I thought that could be a really nice story for her to, to, to write. How has she got on with her life? Sandy's put the whole thing behind her. So um, she, she's been supportive of me writing the book, but she's not at all supportive of in, any memories of it. So you'll see she's not involved in any way with this process that I'm going through now. She very strongly draws a line and wants to have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with it. So, yeah, it would have been lovely if she rewrote those stories that she wrote for the kids while we were there, the castaway stories, she called them. For her, she's moved on and uh, she's thoroughly enjoying life. And I'm sure right now she's probably somewhere in the Karoo riding her bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old, old dot matrix printer. <laughs> yeah, the first the first version was printed out on the dot. Took, took, I can took remember hours you doing that hours. Yes, forever <laughs> waiting, and then the paper reams. Yeah, for the editing. My goodness, how many trees have I chopped yeah, down for sure. to write this book? There were like reams of them, weren't there? Those. Don't you mind me? Don't you mind me? <laughs> Dave, you've written a very important book, and I can see that it's taken an emotional toll, but. It's very compelling, and um, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your story, and thank you, Tammy, for taking it on. Thank you for having us, yeah. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you.